it's funny when we talk about the Christmas story, there's, there's so many traditions that we don't even realize um, that we've missed out on the truth of what actually Scripture says about it. And there's a lot of misconceptions and things out there. And so for, for you regulars, We've been teaching through the book of Daniel, and I promise you tonight how the book of Daniel coincides very well with the Christmas story, and I plan to show you that here momentarily, and I promise I am watching the clock. I will not go too long. But one of the things I want to do is I want to take out some of the myths of the Christmas story and some of the things that aren't necessarily even in the Bible. It's amazing how tradition builds up and you get all these things. I mean, I don't know about you. Have you ever been somewhere you've seen a nativity scene and then you see like an elf in it or something like that? I mean, Santa's coming down on the stable and, and you know, I mean, there's just all sorts of stuff. And that's all well and good and it's fun. But some of the things that, that we talk about here has more to do with what we want to believe than necessarily what the story says from the Bible. And we're going to let Scripture be our guide. And so, first thing that is, where was he born? Was it in a, a barn? Was it in a cave? You know, there's a lot of, of people out there, and every time you see the story, you saw it in there just a minute ago. He goes to the innkeeper, the guy says, we ain't got no room for you, you got to go over there, you know, over there, Right? And it talks about Joseph and Mary, and she's just about to give birth, and she's frantically searching everywhere she can, trying to find a place. But let's look at what the Bible actually says about it. Let's look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. I'll have it up on the screen for you. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's fine. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Cornelius uh, was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up to, from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, and to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Now let's unpack this a little bit. Caesar Augustus was in power from about 27 BC to 14 AD, somewhere in that vicinity. He was kind of the master ruler, and he actually was a good guy. He brought peace to Rome for 250 years from the things that he put in. And shortly after he takes over, there's this 20-year civil war that goes on in this area. And so as the Roman Empire is growing, he says, well, you know what? We need to get a census on all these Israelites, these Hebrew people. You know why he wanted to do that? Just like any good governmental entity, he wants to tax them. That's why. So he calls. He said, everybody's got to go to their hometown because it's a lot easier to count them if they're all in one spot. So everybody's required to go home, which is exactly what it says. They talk about it. They wanted him to go home. That's what they were trying to do to get back to Bethlehem. Now, Joseph was of the lineage of David, and that's important. You'll see why here in a moment. But Jesus is born, and it says they laid him in a manger because there was no room. In the end, it doesn't say anything about him running the Holiday Inn, sorry, no vacancy, and then running over to La Quinta, sorry, no vacancy. I mean, they didn't have Expedia or anything back then where they could just do a quick search and book a room. It doesn't mention an innkeeper. It doesn't mention anything. And the problem is, is that the word in, the way it's translated in our English Bible, gives you a bit of a misconception about it. Because the word that's used here, Greek, is kataluma, and it just simply means guest room or upper room. It would be the same word that's used with Jesus in the Last Supper, in the upper room. That's where they were. You see, what happens is they all came home. Everybody had to come back to their hometown. So the house is full. And I've got a picture here, just to show you, of what this house would look like. And when it talks about being laid in a manger, you, that would be the lower part. The guest room up here is packed full of people. You can't 
spit anymore. She's about to give birth, and I don't know about you, but if you've ever had children, it's a disgusting experience. The children are beautiful as soon as they're washed down, but be that as it may. And so you probably want to separate them a little bit, so they send them down there. Why? Because there was no room. Because the entire family, and they had some big families back then, was in town. It wasn't that there wasn't room in the innkeeper, the Holiday Inn, if you will. It was the fact that the house was full, and they likely had to go down on this bottom floor. They would bring animals in, especially the younger ones or the weaker ones, because they wouldn't make it out there. They didn't want them stolen or, someone to, or something to happen to them. So they would actually keep them in the house. Now, for you farmers, can you imagine bringing your calves in the house? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? I actually met a farmer one time that was driving a Lexus and had two calves in the back seat because he bought them at an auction, and that's all he had with them, and he got a good deal, and his wife was not happy, but be that as it may, here we are. So where was Jesus born? Likely in the downstairs part of this house. It wasn't a, an inn like we, what we think of. We know that it wasn't, because in Luke chapter 10, Luke is the one writing this. Luke writes a historical account of what took place when it talks about the Good Samaritan, and he says he took him to the inn in order to take care of his needs and stuff. He uses the word that means hotel, basically, is what we would call it, a public inn. So you guys kind of see how some of these stories have gotten twisted, and, and we just think differently because we don't necessarily always understand exactly what's being said here. Now, let's go to the next one. Why a virgin birth? Why did that take place? Just to be special? I mean, maybe. One reason is the most obvious is because in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and is, shall call his name Emmanuel. It says it right there that a virgin will conceive. But is that the only reason why or is there something more to the story? And for those of you that are regulars, we've been teaching through the book of Daniel. And this actually ties in very nicely with that. And I'm going to show you why. Because in the book of Daniel is the time of the Babylonian exile where King Nebuchadnezzar, which we, if you've ever seen VeggieTales, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? He's the one that's got the chocolate bunny factory. He's bringing them in, right? Give me the bunnies. But he goes and he exiles and he takes Daniel and, of course, the three guys you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as many others, and brings them over to Babylon. And the book of Ezekiel, the book of Jeremiah, all talk about this whole time. It's all in that same time frame. And so why a virgin birth? Well, in order to answer that question, I've got to show you something that is not exactly the most pleasant to read, but we're going to go. In Matthew chapter 1, it gives a genealogy, and there's no way we're going to read this or able to perhaps pronounce most of these names. But I want to highlight some. Now, the one thing about Matthew is that he was a Levite, which is where the priests would come from. And so being a Levite, he is wanting to show the Jewishness of Jesus in his lineage. So he starts with Abraham, who is the first Israelite. And then he goes through, and then you get David, and then David begot Solomon, right? Solomon is a king. He followed David. We know that. And it goes through a whole bunch of other names. And then it says Josiah begot Jeconiah. Josiah was a king that took over when he was eight. Jeconiah comes in afterward about the time they were carried away to Babylon, which is what I was just talking about, okay? Then Jeconiah begot whoever that is. And later on, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, and so on and so forth. Now, I know most of you guys probably don't go home and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. You know, when you wake up in the morning, and maybe you're having a bad day, and you haven't had coffee, and, and you like, I just need an inspirational passage, you open up to this and say, oh, it's so good, right? Probably not. You probably don't go to the genealogies. But Matthew being a Levite, he is focusing on showing that Jesus himself is the lion of the tribe of Judah, showing his legal lineage. 
Now, you notice the one name that was highlighted was Jeconiah. That creates a problem, and let me show you why. In Jeremiah chapter 22, I believe we got up there, all right, 24 through 30. Now watch what he said. This is God talking to Jeconiah. As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, Jeconiah, Kaniah, Jehoiakim, same guy, okay? They just use different names in these different parts. The son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand. Yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those who face your face you fear the hand of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I have cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. But the land to which they desire to return there shall be there shall not be a return. Basically saying you want to be in Jerusalem I'm sending you to Babylon. This is God talking. Verse 28 in this man Kaniah is despised broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure. Why are they cast out? He and his descendants and cast out into a land which they do not know. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write the man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Judah is the area. Jerusalem would be the capital basically. Now, what is God saying? Not only will Jeconiah die in exile, but his descendants will never regain the throne of David. God's judgment on him is that no one from his line will ever reign as the king of Jerusalem, the king of Judah. Now this creates a paradox because those of you that know and you're familiar with the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David said, somebody from your line will sit on this throne forever. And it was, we know ultimately, it's going to be Jesus. But if you saw previously in that Matthew thing, in fact, do we have that up there again? Or can we go back to that real quick? Jeconiah is in the lineage of Joseph. It creates a problem. Right? Because if that's the case, and there's a basically a blood curse that goes all the way through, that nobody from his line can sit on the throne of David as God had prophesied, then how can Jesus, his son, possibly be the Messiah that they've been waiting for? Well, to answer this, we've got to go to Luke chapter 3. Another fun, fun, fun genealogy. Here we go. We're not going to read all this again. Okay? You're welcome. Go ahead. Uh, Go to Luke chapter 3 there, big guy. There we are. It says, Now Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, Luke does it a little different. Luke is a Gentile. He's not an Israelite. He's also a doctor. And in this case, he's acting as a historian because he is documenting everything. Now, he goes backwards, starting with Jesus to Joseph, goes all the way through, and he ends up with the son of Adam, the Adam and Eve, and ultimately the son of God, the preexistent one. Showing how God or Jesus was, always was, and will be. Now, we have a problem. Joseph here says the son of Heli. Here's how we answer this, and this is how we solve this problem. It's because Luke focuses on his humanity, not the legal line necessarily. But he says the son of Nathan, who was the son of David before it was the son of Solomon. Nathan was David's second living son. Solomon was his first. And he between um, Abraham, to that point, it's exactly the same as Matthew and Luke, but it changes here because he is showing that there is a possibility of something different here. And the different thing is, is that there's an obscure law in the book of Numbers that will solve this problem. Let's go there. Numbers chapter 27, verse 3. It says, Our father died in the wilderness 
but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord, in company with Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad, speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their fathers to pass them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughters. This was a stipulation made for these young ladies because their father died and had underneath the Israelite system is that the, the lineage always was passed to the son. Now, here's what it doesn't say. Healy, as it said in there, can we go to that thing again? Nope. Go to the uh, Luke one, please. Healy is Mary's father. And based on this, she, she comes from the line of David as well. But because Heli had no sons, he was able to pass that inheritance down to her and adopt Joseph as his son-in-law. They don't have a word for son-in-law in Greek or Hebrew. And so, therefore, the right was passed to them, therefore making Jesus eligible to sit on the throne of David. Even though there was this curse placed on the line that Joseph came from, God had a way around it. God knew exactly what he was doing, and it's pretty powerful. One more thing. We talk about the Magi, right? We three kings of Orientar, we sing the song. Ever since middle school, I can't help but smoking on a rubber cigar. I don't know why it always goes through my head every time. But anyway, these magi, who were they and how did they know about Jesus? These magi would be called wise men. And basically, they were a hereditary group of priests that came from the Medes and the Persians. And they were experts in dream interpretation. And a guy named Darius had established them as this, over the state religion in Persia way back in Daniel's time. These guys were the religious authority over the entire empire, clear through history. And Darius didn't just establish them, but he put somebody in charge over all of them, and that person he put in charge of them was a man named Daniel. Now, they'd gone through all of this, and there's two maps I want to show you that are going on at the time of Jesus' thing. You've got the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. This is where Babylon would be. This is where you see it right there. And they would come from this region. You have this middle section that was kind of open, and these two countries would fight on it all the time. They're always fighting over trying to seek land. But Daniel had been in charge of them. And that is the reason that the whole lion's den incident, because they're trying to get rid of him. So we fast forward a bit to Herod, who's not well-liked, and he's sick. And he is put in charge of the, this area, and he's called the king of the Jews. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. Now these guys were Parthians and they were coming over, but how many did it say were there? It didn't. Why do we get three? Where'd three come from? Tradition. In the 6th century, that's when that started, that there was three. Prior to that, it was eight, then six. We're down to three. Now, here in a few more years, maybe it'll be one or two. We don't know. The truth is, it was likely an entourage, a whole army of them going, which is why Herod was so intimidated, because in his mind, they said, we are here looking for the king of the Jews. And in his mind, that's a spit in the face, because he was the king of the Jews. 
They said, we're coming to worship. How did they know about it? Because Daniel had been in charge of them. They would have had access to the Holy Book, what we call the Old Testament, clear back then and all the way through and said, you'd be looking for this because Daniel, the angel Gabriel told Daniel the very day that Jesus would come and ride into Jerusalem being ready to be crucified. These guys knew about that because Daniel had been put in charge of them by a pagan king named Darius. It's amazing when you start tracking everything that happens in the Old Testament and to the New Testament and see how powerful our Bible is and how accurate it is down to the nth degree into every letter. Why did they bring three gifts? And that's really where the three comes from because we assume that they brought three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are prophetic. Gold talks about his kingship, that he is the king of, of the world. Frankincense is his priestly duty. They would burn frankincense and, and burn it in their temple procedures. And myrrh was something that they used at death, that they would basically cover up the stench of the body with, is essentially what it was. And that's why those three gifts were bit, brought. They were prophetic of what Jesus was here to do. Now in his millennial kingdom, when he returns, they bring two gifts to him, gold and frankincense. Why won't they bring myrrh? Because he's already died. He rose again. He's not going to die again. He doesn't have to. The Bible is powerful, and this is what we are here to celebrate. 